Hello and welcome to the Eighth No Sessions. I'm Mike Shamil. And I'm Devin Mullen. And our special guest today is Sally Schaefer. Sally, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. Um, one of the things that really uh, like prompted us to interview you is, out of, you know, out of all of us in this call, you have the most education in music, but not just like in traditional music theory. You didn't just go to Fredonia and you know take the same course as everyone else there. Um, you went into uh, ethnomusicology, which is a really fascinating subject. Tell 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 our our viewers at home like what that degree is. So basically, explain it as um, world music or music and culture. Um, you can look at like a lot of different facets of it, and you can kind of concentrate in any area of the world or any culture that you like a lot. But um, I, I mean, you start with a broad base, you know, you take like folk music classes and world music classes. You look at everything from American folk music to all different areas of the world, Latin America, African folk music, Middle East, East Asia, and uh, parts of um, Central and Western Europe as well. So um, I did that in my undergraduate degree. I took an American folk music class, a world music class. And uh, then when I went to grad school, I focused more on Celtic music, specifically Welsh folk music. And didn't you go actually all the way over to Cardiff for that? I did. I studied there for a year-long program. So it was um, two actual taught semesters where you took classes in the fall and spring semester. And then over the summer, you did your field work and wrote a dissertation. Well, you know, it's a master's thesis. They call it a dissertation there. That's super cool. That had to be a really fun experience. It was a lot of fun. It's pretty wet and rainy there. It's like the rainiest city in the UK. So you um, traded snow for rain. <laughs> When I came back, I had a vitamin D deficiency and I was like, what is wrong with me? I feel like so sick all the time. And I was like, oh, this, like, how did I not get that when I was living in Buffalo? But somehow there's just no sun there. It doesn't get above like 70 degrees. But I mean, yeah, I traveled around Wales a lot because, I mean, I was interested in doing that anyway, but also because my field research was focused on Welsh traditional music and culture and history and all that. So I kind of traveled around within the country, which is pretty small. You can get from Cardiff, which is all the way in the south, to North Wales in like four or five hours. So you, Oh, wow. That doesn't really take doable. long at all. Yeah, it's totally doable. There's a lot of really neat sites there, and they're not very touristy because most people who travel to the UK really just end up in like London or maybe in Edinburgh or somewhere in Scotland. But not a lot of people go to Wales. It's kind of like a hidden gem. So there's a lot of free, really neat things there. Now, did you learn to sing in Welsh while you were there too? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I took a Welsh language course, but it was like a two-day like accelerated thing that was very beginner <laughs> intro. But I did, part of my research was going to this weekly Welsh traditional music session that they had in the city. Um, while you were spending time in Cardiff, you know, did you get to check out the local music scene in addition to learning about um, their traditional music? Did you get the chance to kind of like, you know, and wander around and, and find like, you know, the some of the local bars where, you know, people were playing? Well, kind of. So 
I think if I had gone to Cardiff after living in Buffalo and becoming more aware of Buffalo's local music scene, I definitely would have done that because that's like a thing now where I'm like anywhere I visit, I have to find out, you know, who's what kind of musicians are around and what's going on. But at that time, I hadn't lived in Buffalo for a very long period of time like up to that point because I was at undergrad and then I lived on the West Coast for a while and then I moved there. So my thing at that point was like, oh, I just want to find the session and any place that I lived, I always wanted to find like the Celtic music session. So I didn't do like as much as I wish I did had I been there, you know, later in my life. But um, I had a couple friends that played in bands and because, you know, I, of course I went to school with a bunch of other people who were in the same graduate program as me. And oh, there were a lot of international students and a lot of my close friends were international students, but there were also some that were from England and Wales. And a lot of them had gone to Cardiff for undergrad. So they already had like roots in the area. And um, a lot of them were performance majors or they had performance backgrounds. So some of them were like cover, like bar bands. There was a band called Bass 12 that one of my friends was in. He played drums and they were like, they did covers, but with like a full like jazz combo of 12 people. So it was mostly instrumental and that was so pretty- So one more like musician in the band than a ska band. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, <laughs> they were really good. Like everyone in that band was great. They were all pretty much all music students and they played at really neat venues. There's this one place called the Vulcan that was like very loungy atmosphere, had like couches that didn't match and that whole kind of vibe and that was really cool and that guy also played in a trio i can't remember what they were called something with bandit in it like the three bandits or something and they played at like some really swanky clubs there was one that you had to get on the list like the bouncer was outside and you had to be on the list in order to get in and it was this stairs thing that i like didn't even know existed they didn't have like a facade that was on the ground floor and it was cool. They had like very like mad scientist laboratory themed cocktails, which were very expensive. Um, and he played solo too. And he, he did a lot more covers and sort of like bar music then, but now he, he does more original stuff. Oh, you can keep going and ignore the, ignore the animal. <laughs> and <laughs> the, these are the joys of, of doing stuff like this for, at home. Nothing is secret uh, and so. privacy doesn't exist. <laughs> Come on, little one. Um, he does a lot more original stuff now, and I've seen some of his original stuff online. He plays piano also. He's a very good pianist, and he sings very well. So there's that band. There's a couple other, like, sort of jazz bands that I knew, and um, a lot of my friends played in jazz ensembles that lived there. And then one of my friends also played in a sort of, like, a punk band and with his, like, school friends. So I saw them, they played in Oxford at this bar that was called like Sheep of Wheat or something very like... (laughs) Sheep of Wheat? That sounds like something out of Dungeons and Dragons. It was literally something like that. I can't remember exactly. You and your party wander in to Sheep and Wheat. You order a Guinness. (laughs) Um, The party gets into a fight. (laughs) Called the Nightingales, I think, which is like a relatively sort of well-known band from... I think they're from England, uh, like a punk band. And they also had a comic that played, like they played, they were the opening band, then they had a comedian, and then they had the headliner. And the comedian was like an anti 
comic sort of style. Like everything was not funny on purpose. And I was like, this is so British. Like this is the most British thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, yeah. Very dry. Yeah. Very dry. So that sounds fun. <laughs> if, if we can just um, sort of shift the lens here, because you, you, you know me, I, I love to get all academic and highfalutin about oh, yeah. things. Oh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> so ethnomusicology, uh, we, we were having our warm-up conversation before we started recording this. I think another description you could give it is sort of a geneolo uh, genealogist of music. You study sort of the, the history of music, how different influences sort of coalesce into more modern genres that we understand. I think in terms of that, in terms of that education, you could actually give us some pretty good insight into understanding the present state of music. What's Where, where are we learning from geographically and, and historically? Um, you know the the three the three big genres I think of that have um, you know really international influence, even though we we might not traditionally consider it as such, are jazz, rock and roll, and, and the blues. Um, and and certainly uh, uh, you know more Eurocentric folk forms like like the Welsh that you're studying. In in looking at these different types of music and these different sort of uh, uh, cultural cauldrons or, or, or petri dishes that, that lead to uh, what we have today. What are, what's a common thread that you've noticed? Oh, so like what we were talking about before with traditional music themes or, you know, any kind of music because a lot of different types of music have uh, thematic elements in the storytelling that um, come across in all different cultures. And yeah, there are definitely themes in a lot of types of traditional and modern popular music too. Um, ballads that are about love and loss and some good times, but mostly bad times. That's used to be a theme that people sing about a lot is just being upset. Um, yeah, that's. I think that's kind of cross-cultural. It's all human experience things that anybody in pretty much any culture is going to experience at some time, probably. There's definitely a lot of ballads being written right now. Yeah, a lot of corona ballads. Um, yeah, I think that, yeah, everybody has these experiences I mean, I don't, I don't want to speak for everyone. It's kind of hard to like identify a universal element. And I feel like that's always dangerous because of course I haven't studied every single culture and like subculture, but. And, and we don't want to be cultural imperialists or we don't want no, to yeah. sort of overextend our grasp in defining what is and what isn't. Right. But you could, Certainly. you could talk about some of the very basic human emotions of, you know, loss and fear and joy and things like that. Like things that, that, you know, if you're living and breathing, you're, you're probably feeling those, you know, really basic emotions. I mean, there's definitely a lot more complex cultural stuff, but, you know, you can at least, you know, talk about the roots of things. I, I think an interesting thing that we had touched on in our uh, pre-recording conversation was just the role that music has in, in certain cultures today. Um, you know, usually in places where the the written language, where the uh, massive amount of like literary archive isn't 
as present. Right. How music helps maintain an oral history and a sense of cultural identity in that way. Yes, definitely. Um, the example that we talked about is West African griots, G-R-I-O-T-S. Um, they are basically bards that sometimes they play an instrument, sometimes it's all just through singing. They sort of maintain an oral history and song form of their uh, community, which might be like a tribe or some you know smaller thing, family history sometimes, um, because there's no written form of history. And it might be because there isn't a written equivalent to the language that they're speaking in, or maybe they just haven't, you know, it's just not in their tradition to write history down. So that's a person who's like revered in that type of community because they keep the history in, you know, they remember it and they have to pass it down to someone eventually so that it can be remembered. And actually when you said an oral tradition, oral history, the same thing happens with instrumental music too. Um, you find that in Irish fiddling, there is an unbroken tradition of fiddlers from, you know, whenever, I don't know, even way back when. And that's a thing that people take pride in, you know, people who play fiddle, who are Irish fiddlers, that's like something that you talk about is that it's an unbroken oral tradition. So that style of fiddling has been passed down from generations. And that's actually something that doesn't exist in Wales because um, during World War One and World War Two, like most of the people who played fiddle were men. And when a lot of them were killed in the wars, uh, that tradition became broken, which I mean, it's hard to say if that's absolutely true, because I don't know how you would document that. But I'm that, sure it had an impact, though. I mean, that was a, yeah. quite a lot of lives lost for such a small you know, population. Exactly. So um, they don't have an unbroken oral tradition for fiddling. They have it for harping and harp is very important in that in, in Ireland, but also mostly in Wales, like even more so in Wales, it's a huge instrument in there. Even their contemporary folk music uses it a lot. You can go to a Welsh traditional music session and there will always be harps there. The same cannot necessarily be said for Irish traditional music sessions. You don't generally see a harp maybe sometimes, but they've got, Wales has like the small bardic harp, which is the one that I showed you guys the other day that I had <laughs> at post Epoch open mic night. I have a small one. It's like 24, usually 17 to 24 strings. Um, but they also have larger ones, the Welsh triple harp, which is actually a version of the Italian Baroque harp that just a lot of Welsh harpers just tended to use. So it became known as a Welsh triple harp. It has three rows of strings. That's why it's a triple harp. Interesting. Um, so that tradition, the harping tradition, was sort of maintained because there were Roma people living in Wales and they were able to maintain the tradition when a lot of other people weren't maintaining it either because of the war or whatever. Um, but they also infused like their own style of music into it. So there's kind of this like Welsh and Roma tune, like a lot of tunes have kind of both traditions interwoven. And it's really neat. There's a lot of people who study that in Wales. Um, so uh, uh, this is going to be uh, a, a bit of a, a you know, a two-ton boulder of a question. So, you know, a, apologies for just kind of throwing it Here it, it comes. Yeah, here it comes. <laughs> so 
already history by nature is an incomplete telling of of what has happened in you know in the in the past obviously i mean the, the old adage is that history is written by the victors and certainly history as we understand it is written by those who have the most access to the means of producing history right so you look at these cultures where that sort of sense of history blends with mythology and folklore and spirituality and it serves this multi-purpose function in a regard it's it's not just entertainment it's not something to be um consumed necessarily it's it's part of creating an identity now this isn't so much a critique of contemporary music, but that that sort of niche, that necessity for identity in the arts, it's it's not quite necessary. I mean, we can uh, hop on Wikipedia, for example, and read a, a fairly, you know, not perfect, but a fairly accurate uh, uh, recollection of history or, or, or science or math or, you know, this, that, and the other. So my question is, Studying these these historical, very significant um, uh, uh, forms of music that that served such an important role in creating identity and purpose, how do we reconcile that with an age where information is incredibly it, it mutates, it's transmitted quickly? We we don't attach much of our personal selves to what we know. How, how do we do we need to bring that back do we need to move past that do we find a middle ground between it i actually was just sort of thinking of this a little like a while before we started this video chat because i was like if they ask me what band like what band is my favorite or like something like that like i have to go on like spotify and be like i <laughs> Because I'm going to forget someone or like my favorite album by an artist. I'm going to be like, I don't remember the title of that album. And it's those like, those are boring questions. We don't know. But that's the thing where it's like, I don't remember anymore because I don't have to, because I can just look it up online. Like, and it's not like, I mean, I listen to those albums frequently, but it's not something I think about. So I like the, just the name of the album, you know, it's up there on Spotify. I know what the cover looks like. <laughs> and if I don't physically own it, I don't really like think about that so much. So yeah, how knowledge plays a role in your identity and how that's changed over time. I guess maybe I would say that it's more experiential knowledge that plays a role in your identity than, you know, just something you, you read. I mean, education is part of experience. So it's not to say that just being educated, that doesn't have an effect on who you are you're still like, experiencing that education, but maybe just like facts that you read or you don't have to memorize because you can just read it online. That doesn't, maybe doesn't play as much of a role in um, your identity as a person, but definitely your experiences and traveling or uh, just talking to other people and knowledge that you gain from that. That's not something that you forget as easily, I don't think, even with access to as much information that you have right now. So it, it, it would seem almost that the, the sort of sanctity that, and you know, there, there's always the risk of overly romanticizing things. I mean, you, you look at that and like, um, I mean, this is a, a particular example, but um, there's a, a work that was written in the 1700s called uh, Orinoco, which is, it, it 
has this trope of like the noble savage and it's it's just very it's over the top it's not it's it's dehumanizing for how romantic it is so we we don't want to do that but we also don't want the sort of more personal significance of these things to become a mere curiosity or or a quaint thing that belongs in the past so do you think it's important then to engage with these other cultures with these other ways of presenting to sort of patch together perhaps a more total human identity and understand that you know it's it's a part of our our shared experience yes definitely and what you're saying about just you can just go on wikipedia and read about music from other cultures or whatever you absolutely can do that and it's great that that's a tool that exists if you aren't able to travel or you know you don't have time you can you can still learn about other cultures and other music um just by going on the internet but it obviously does not paint a complete picture of what's going on there especially if it's written by someone who's not from that culture or hasn't studied it intimately you know you and you're talking about like reading old romanticized stuff when i i did a senior capstone on Chinese music theory for my undergraduate degree. And the only books that were in the Geneseo library were from like the 1890s, like it was ridiculous. And one of them was written by a German, I guess they don't really have, ethnomusicology as a field didn't develop until like the 1960s and 70s. So it wasn't even a field yet when he was writing, but kind of comparative musicology is what they probably would have called it at the time. And I don't know if he actually, he must have actually visited China, but it's hard to say because the way that he wrote about it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know necessarily. He's kind of um, demeaning towards like the culture while at the same time studying it. So I don't know how you do that, but it wasn't great. Um, yeah, that, that realistic condescension. Ooh. Yeah, like, well, yeah. you know, they're, they're very strange people and... Um, their tonality is like not right really because you know the scale is not tempered the same way that a western scale contemporary scale is tempered so to him it sounded wrong but like you know that's just we know that that's not how that works <laughs> right and isn't chinese a, a tone language so i mean just from a like a language difference i mean you know the the structure of it at its base is very different than you know german or or english yeah. you know it um, I've I've heard that you know one word can you know pronounced different ways you know can have completely different meanings. The cat agrees. That he is, does. He uh, does. There are four four tones. Well, three. There's there's three or four in Mandarin. Oh my gosh, I can't remember. I, I took Mandarin for like a week. Um, that was fun. But um, I think there's nine in Cantonese, which is a lot. So to, to to jump in for a sec, though, do you think that that maybe presents? Um, well, I, I for me it does. Just just hearing about it and observing it, it, it seems to uh, a, a sort of problem with with really understanding the music you study. If so much of it is experiential, if you do have to live it and be there and talk to the people, do you in the process of studying, in the process of commenting on it and delineating it and putting it in cladistics and genealogies and species types and this, that and the other, do you do you miss something inherently as a an outside observer into that? And how do you overcome that? Oh, so if you aren't 
part of the music culture that you're studying, right? That's what you're asking about? Yeah. Yeah, the best way, in my opinion, to do that is to become what is called a participant observer. So while you are researching the group, you're also participating in the activities. I mean, it, it kind of depends on what you're doing field research in. Obviously, if it's something more like ritual, music, or religious, you know, and if you're not part of that culture, it wouldn't be appropriate for you to participate necessarily. Um, but if it's something like what I was doing, where I was going to traditional Welsh music sessions, you're totally welcome to come in as a performer, even as a, an international person. And so that definitely builds a rapport, first of all, with your community. If you're also a musician and they know that you're interested in really learning the music and not just the music, but the history behind the music and the culture and all of that, that's really going to get people to open up to you about what the music means to them and their experiences also. And, and then you'll have your own experiences too. Like when I was in this group, this is how I felt about the music, even though I'm not Welsh. And then you can talk to people who are Welsh about how they feel about the music. And they're going to be, it's, it's going to be easier for you to communicate with them because you have an understanding of, you know, these tunes. I learned all these tunes that they taught me and some of the language and all some of the history I was reading. So there's more of a framework them to kind of describe their own experiences to you and how they relate to the music and, that, and i think again with our i, I keep referencing our, our pre-recorded conversation we should have recorded it as well at this point, <laughs> how much it's being brought up um but we, we talked and and i i think you're touching on it beautifully here is just the the sort of delicate non-interfering nature that you have to you know engage because we we take it for granted that we can make music and sing whatever and just pop it up on soundcloud or you know whatever and there's not going to be much of a ramification but there there are plenty of places where music serves a a vital uh, uh dissenting function for for political commentary and you can't just you know have the luxury of observing and inserting yourself into these these situations. We were talking about Thomas uh, Mapfumo, and uh, you were talking about um, Turkish? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about that, what's happening maybe around the world in those kinds of scenes. Okay, so the Turkish musicians, one of my professors in Cardiff was his research was in Turkish and Middle Eastern music, but specifically in Turkey, he was working with musicians who have dissenting political opinions from the ruling party in Turkey. And so he had to be very careful with how he was interacting with people. And of course, you have to build up a rapport, especially, I mean, it's really good to build a rapport with any, you know, anyone you're working with for any kind of research. Definitely. But um, especially in his case, because it was a sensitive topic and a sensitive time. Um, he really had to build a rapport with those musicians first before they'd even, you know, talk to him about that kind of stuff. And then you also have to be very careful with confidentiality and, um, you know, just being sure that ethically you are not uh, treating anyone badly, you know, either writing about them or using their name or their likeness because they, 
if the government or the ruling party finds out about that, then they're going to be in trouble. And you obviously don't want to do that to people that you are working with and that are entrusting you with your research. So, and with Thomas Mapumo, he had a dissenting political opinion from Mugabe, I think. I hope that's who it is. Yep. I wrote that paper a long time ago. So, um, yeah, but, you know, he's, I mean, he, he he's had issues with pretty much anyone in power because I'm pretty sure after Mugabe was removed from power, he still was like, yeah, I don't really like the new guys either. You know, it's not. I mean, you can only go through the same song and dance, you know, yeah. so many times. <laughs> so, but he was, he created a new style of music called Chimarenga music, which used Shona traditional Shona um, instruments called Mbiras, which you, oh, I wish I had mine in here. It's in the other room. Um, actually, I think my, mine is a kalimba, which is technically, I had to look this up because I was like, I know the Mbira is specific to Shona people who are from the Zimbabwe area. And the, the kalimba, I think, was created by an ethnomusicologist to like mimic it. But the Shona has... You know, it's used for like ritual music and it should, that specific instrument should really only be used in that kind of music. It's kind of like blasphemous to, you know, you should just take it as like a, a non-Shona person and play it because it has ritual properties in their culture. Um, but he was using Shona melodies and also Imbira and fusing that with electric guitar music. And he was, everything was sung in Shona language. And so the ruling party there they didn't speak that language. So it was a great tool for um, political music because they couldn't understand it. So he could basically say whatever he wanted and they wouldn't know about it. Eventually, of course, <laughs> they found out. But um, Hello, Google, can you can you make a translator for Shona, please? <laughs> yeah. All right. So he, uh, yeah, he was exiled and he lives in Portland, Oregon, last I knew. Um, he's still there and he still makes music and Thomas Mapfumo and the All Blacks, they have some really great albums which are on Spotify, so you can definitely listen to them. We'll definitely uh, make a, a shout out to them and the little blurb we do in the write-up after, for sure. So other other than that, the uh, let, let's take the, the headiness of this discussion down briefly. <laughs> <laughs> if we, just, if we just can. take the take the lens and and go from like the really broad philosophical view, and just kind of like you know narrow it down for a moment. Yeah, tie tie a brick to the kite. <laughs> no, so, tie a brick to each of the hosts. That'd be more effective. <laughs> all right. So you're also involved in a, a local musical project called Over and Out. Um. But, Unfortunately, it seems you guys are on a bit of a hiatus, non non voluntary, just with the pandemic. But regardless, I still like your music. So t tell us a little bit about that project. Um, so over and out started like two years ago, twenty seventeen, I think February twenty seventeen. Not that anyone's counting. I don't have a date. We probably can find when our first rehearsal actually was, but um. Basically, Rob Stiggs, who is a great guitar player, songwriter, vocalist, uh, he has been in a state punk, punk band called CPR, City Powered Radio, for like years, more than 10 years. And they've been a staple in Buffalo punk scene for a while. But um, he writes so much music and some of it is not stuff that CPR 
plays. So he kind of was just posting it on social media on Facebook and a bunch of people saw it and I was one of them. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to get involved in a project. And he just wanted people to play with. It wasn't necessarily going to be anything, you know, there were no concrete plans, but four other people responded and we all just met up in our drummer's basement. He got a practice space, which was really nice. That made that really easy. And uh, yeah, he writes so much. There is new music all the time. We put out a, an EP and a full album in the same year. And that is all a lot of credit to Rob because he just writes. It takes a lot of work from having, having my own experiences like as you know a recording artist. You know, people don't realize how much preparation and how much like work goes into putting even an EP together, but especially an album. And to do an album and an EP in the same year, that's a Herculean effort. Yeah, it was a lot. The first, the EP was recorded with our keyboard player BD because he's got kind of like a small studio set up in his house, and that was a lot of fun. Um, and then we recorded the full album at uh, Flower House Studios with Jason Wright. And that's that's on Hurdle Avenue, right? It is on Hurdle Ave, yeah. Now, did, did they come out of, like, I, I used to go to a, like a venue called The Flower House over on Flower Street, and I used to hang out over there and watch punk and ska bands. These are the same guys, I'm assuming, right? The same guys, Okay, yeah. that's awesome. I, I lost track of them, at, you know, when it was, you know, I'm not gonna get into my, you know, background, but well, I, I lost track. Well, I, I was I I moved away to Erie, Pennsylvania for a few years, and during that time I was still coming up to Buffalo like every weekend I could till like towards the end when my car was too broken down and my wallet was too empty to like keep going up to Buffalo. I could barely get my car to work, let alone to the city. So you know, for uh, about eight months, I sort of lost track of like the Buffalo music scene entirely because I just couldn't you know keep up with it. I I couldn't even play in my own band for a while, but you know. Eventually, I, I knew that, you know, it kind of, uh, that that venue came to end as with other basement venues of that era that kind of either fizzled out or evolved or moved or whatever. And uh, that I had so many fond memories of just, like, checking out bands there. And uh, so it's, it, when I did hear about Flower uh, House Studios, and I never had the chance to kind of, like, find out if, if those are the same guys, but I'm glad to hear that they are, that they're keeping it going. Yes, all the On the Cinder guys, which is Jason is the guitarist and On the Cinder, they all lived at Flower House. They ran shows there together, um, you know, as their practice space or whatever. Then they had Treehouse, was the second iteration. And then Noiseland Arcade is technically what the Hurdle House is, but Jay just uses Flower House Studios as the, you know, because that was like the original one. So that's the name of his studio. And he runs a studio in the attic. It's a pretty sweet setup for just, you know, like a DIY sort of home recording. He's got a snake that goes all the way to the basement so they can record drums down there. And then yes. the that, way that's that pretty like high fanciness for, for like a, you know, a punk uh-huh. recording studio. Yeah. That That's yeah. like, that's like the upper echelon of like the punk world when you can afford punk a snake. Plus. Yeah. Punk we didn't plus. just, yeah. <laughs> we actually have a separate space for the engineer. He's not sitting next to the drummer getting his ears destroyed. <laughs> yeah. And when we recorded the over and out album there, we actually, we didn't do anything to a click. Cause we're like, this is just, it's too hard. Like there's so many 
meter changes and tempo changes and we accelerate and decelerate like on purpose because that's just how the songs feel the best. So the drums were recorded while we were all upstairs playing like live with him in his headphones, which must be really difficult. So props to Pat for that, because if you can't see anyone for visual cues, like you were talking about yeah, doing, um, you know, trying to practice together in quarantine over the computer. Um, There's ways to do it, but it's, it's, it's definitely not the same. It, it, there's compromises you have to make. And I mean, spe- speaking about, because, yeah, there's a quarantine going on. Yeah. How how are you keeping your chops up? It well. To... <laughs> <laughs> I This is great, actually, because so Christina Stock was the one who first mentioned that there was going to be like this open mic, virtual open mic night. And she's like, yeah, you know, you could totally play it. It's like a sign up, first come, first serve sort of thing. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'll, I'll look at it. <laughs> Cause I was like, I don't play in, I don't play in front of people like alone. Usually. I mean, I kind of did like, I was in guitar club at Geneseo. So we had like guitar oh. club open mic once a semester. And I did that. That's like, you weren't the- supposed to talk about guitar club. Wasn't that rule number one? <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was an awesome club that one of my friends there actually started and it's still there, which is cool. I get to be like, I was in the original guitar club at Geneseo. Um, but that's like the only time I played guitar in front of people ever. And I like hadn't done it since college. And then she's like, you know, I'm the only girl that signed up for the first open mic night. Like, <laughs> and I was like, damn, she got the feminist in me. Like now I have to do it. Solidarity. I got to show the boys up. Give yeah. me my mandolin. One Where's my fiddle? Artist out of like, I think you probably had eight people the first night, the first time that, that it was run. So I was like, oh. So, so I'm just going to give up the, the ghost on this. We're talking sh- shameless self-plug here. Uh, <laughs> if, if you're interested, just for any uh, viewers right now, uh, me, Michael Shamil, and Christina Stock, who are members of the Buffalo Music Community, we run an online open mic every week. It's called Post APOC. Uh, usually we have it Wednesday nights, and Sally is going to be performing at our showcase uh, technically today because we're going to be putting this out tomorrow. But. Wow, it's a lot of activity for me. For Friday the 15th. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yes. Uh, for I, those in internet land. Um, yeah, so putting together... I can't... I'm trying to even remember what I played the first time. Oh, no, I do remember. I was just talking to Mike about how I was like, I really should write down a list of everything that I performed because I can't remember everything. But I know the first time... I played an original because I felt compelled to, because I was like, everyone else on this open mic is going to be playing original music, and it feels weird to just like play covers when. Hey guys, I, I'm just going to like play the Beatles. Yeah, I was like, I can't, I can't do that, and I never perform original music. I don't have very much, and I had never played that before, and I was like, I feel like I have to, so I did, and I did. Um, Lindsey Buckingham is my favorite guitar player, so mm. I did. Never going back again. Fleetwood Mac. And then uh, since then, I was like, I got to expand this. It's got to be better every week. I got to bring in more instruments every week, maybe a loop pedal. So really, I'm just it's just a challenge for me, which is good because otherwise I practice and I, I mostly play, you know, I play pretty much all covers, but I try to have some more obscure ones. So they're not like just things that everybody knows. It's like boring, right? So you always keep it fresh. It's thanks. always a good performance. Thank you. 
So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've like practiced covers of stuff a lot for like years, but I just never end up performing them anywhere because I'm like, no, I'm not ready. Yet. <laughs> it's not ready. And this is really like a deadline where I'm like, it has to be done by Wednesday and I'm going to present it and it's fine. It's supposed to be an open mic. It's for fun. Like I obviously want it to be good, but yeah. So I've been practicing way more guitar than I like ever, maybe ever have. You know, sometimes that pressure, it like having that once in a while really does help like, you know, squeeze out a little bit extra talent in us because, you know, it, it gives you a, not just more motivation, but I feel like sometimes the the little bit of like anxiety and the adrenaline that comes with it, you know, sometimes makes you go like, oh, oh okay, okay, I could do this and do this. And ah, that's how that part goes. And it kind of like, you know, kind of nudges you along a little more. I definitely have found, you know, in my own experiences that, you know, if there's a little bit of pressure on me when I'm creating music, you know, that I can get stuff done a little bit, you know, better and faster. If I have no pressure whatsoever, it could take me forever because I'm just like, yeah, I'll, I'll work in that part tomorrow. But if it's like, oh, shit, like <laughs> I promised everyone I was going to play this like Wednesday night, they're going to hold me to it. They're going to hold me accountable. I got to do it. That's what I've been doing for the showcase, which honestly, this interview, I was like, I don't know if I should because I really should just practice for like, which is basically what I've been doing honestly it's like I pick stuff that I'm like this is way too hard for me but I'm gonna do it anyway like I'm not a guitarist really and I mean I've played guitar for a while but it's not anywhere near being like a main instrument that I play so well you're playing it competently I mean no one's been like oh man Sally's performance <laughs> yeah. sucks we've, we've all been going like what instruments is she gonna pull out today <laughs> there's always something new and I and you know I I can definitely understand a little bit of that pressure just because you're going to be playing with some really competent musicians in their own right, Michael Farrell and, yes. and Philip Stevens. But you know we we asked you because you're you're the cream of the crop, you're the the you know the king of the pop, the top of the top, or, or whatever. For me, I just know I like uh, to do the open mic because I like the broad sweeping powers and social status <laughs> that open mic hosts get. Yes. I don't know. I, I think uh, I think we're about uh, at our time, though. So any any final words for Shamil? Yeah, I, I just wanted to kind of like bring the the conversation kind of full circle. Um, in your experiences and your travels, and learning from other musicians, and getting to kind of you know take yourself out of the Buffalo music scene for a while and experience you know other other scenes and other groups and other you know, um, mashups of people and their music, you know, what lesson could you really bring from them that you really feel that the, you know, us Buffalo musicians ought to learn? Oh boy, this is a tough, man, this is a tough. See, Devin, you're not the only one who can ask the deep questions. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, um, I mean, I guess, because traveling, like I think we talked about this a little bit when we were not recording. Maybe we talked about it during, I can't even remember if we talked about it on the recording or not. But yeah, like I, I, when I was abroad, I was studying traditional music. And of course I was going to traditional sessions, but, and I did see some of my friends and other musicians who were playing in the area, but I really wish that I still even then like went out 
alone more and went to shows and saw all the local different types of local music because I did that a lot more when I was living in Buffalo than I did when I was abroad. And I wish I had had my experience in Buffalo going to house shows and going to Tudor Lounge, my favorite, favorite bar. It is literally my favorite bar. I love them. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of good bars and venues in Buffalo. But uh, I wish I had had that experience because I've seen so many bands, local bands in Buffalo that I love. And I think there's so much talent here. And I know probably like everyone says that about their city, but there really is. And it's really like for me, even like coming from a, you know, a trained musician background where I like was educated in music, I am impressed by my peers consistently, like all the time, people who don't have formal music training or maybe have some or like haven't kept up with it. And I think there's just so much talent here. And the writing is so good too, especially like people have so many different perspectives, especially when they don't have formal music background. So I really wish that that was something I did when I traveled. So if people are going to be traveling after quarantine, it's definitely worth checking out any like local music if you're in another country, whether it's traditional music, because there might be something if you're in like Ireland or Wales or even England, Devin. Um, (laughs) There there are like traditional music sessions that just happen in, in pubs and stuff. And, you know, it's nice to hang out there and check out the local music scene. Or if you go to maybe a punk show or whatever, any local offerings that there are. And I think it's really great to do that when you're abroad and you should also do that when you're living here because I think there yes. are maybe yes. not people who are listening to this interview because I feel like most people who are listening to this know that there's great music in Buffalo but um, it's not something I discovered until I was a little bit older because I just hadn't lived in the city like really in the city for long enough and there's so much to discover and I think some people think like oh you know like we don't have any famous Buffalo musicians aside from the Goo Goo Dolls Every time I die, Napkeys. Surprised. But there are like. Dyson Maniacs, Ani DeFranco, Spyro Gyra. (laughs) Buffalo, like, it has, you know, on a side note, has a lot of like, um, secret, like, secretly, Buffalo has its fingers in a lot of music. Exactly. But to kind of like build off your point, you're, you're absolutely right that like going out and playing in different areas and getting out of town a little bit and spreading, you know, your wings and checking out some of the other scenes and, Taking an instrument with you is super fun. I I spent uh, pre-lockdown, I've spent a lot of time trying to like check out Canada a little more. And because I realize one of the things we forget in Buffalo is we're at the tail end of like the golden horseshoe here, you know, we're we're at the edge of like a really big metropolitan area. And we, we 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 feel like the world ends at the Niagara River, but it doesn't. And, um, I played in Ottawa at an open mic, and <clears throat> I just like discovered it that morning when I was like googling. You know, I was like trying to find like local music venues, and I saw that they had an open mic that day, and it was like perfect. My girlfriend and I were in town, and I brought my guitar with me. We got to this little pub, and it was like lunchtime on a Sunday, just a regular old Sunday open mic. No, a Saturday. Sorry, it was a Saturday open mic, and the place was packed. People came piling in and I got like the second slot on there and I had so much fun and nobody knew me you know I'm just some some jerk from Buffalo with his crappy acoustic guitar playing and they enjoyed it everyone's paying attention listening and I got to you know learn a little bit from the musicians that were there and pick their brains and it was a fun experience and you know I also go to free times cafe 
um, every now and then in Toronto. And if I would just, if I would leave work, like as soon as the bell rings, I could just get to Toronto in time to go to this restaurant and uh, get on the list before it fills up. And the table at the back room where everyone plays is so small that, you know, the, these long tables that everyone sits in, you're forced to sit with strangers, which means you got to talk with them. And I love that. And I've learned a bunch of different things from playing in Canada. So, yeah, definitely, like, get out there. Like, when, when this, when, the, like, you know, things open back up and it's safe to go out again, like, go to Detroit, go to Canada, go to Erie, PA, you know, go check out the Rook down there. You know, talk to the other musicians. There's some really cool things out there. And then bring that those experiences back here. And And also, you know, not we we don't want to drive all the talent away. Like, ex- please explore Buffalo too. <laughs> well, you know. spread the uh, word while you're out there. As soon as everything opens, get out of here. Get the go, hell no. Go other places. You know, <laughs> spread the word of Buffalo. Tell them how cool it is, but not too many people. We don't want to turn it into a tourist town. But yeah, a few keep, people keep, come keep back. it a moderately well kept secret. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we gotta go update that sign on the side of the building. Not keep Buffalo a secret. Keep Buffalo moderately a secret, sort of. Yeah. All right, this has been a lot of fun. We appreciate you, Sally, for letting us, you know, pest you with questions and and ask about your experiences. Thank you, Mike and Devin, for having me. You're welcome. This has been the Eighth Note Sessions. I'm Mike Shamil. I'm Devin Mullen. And thank you, Sally, for joining us. I kept the faith And I kept voting Not for the iron fist But for the helping hand For theirs is a land With a wall around it And mine is a faith In my fellow man Check out this excerpt from Between the Wars A cover Sally did you can find her music at soundcloud.com slash sallyandra, S-A-L-L-Y-A-N-N-D-R-A, or look up her band Over and Out. I kept the faith, and I kept voting, not for the iron fist, but for the helping hand, for theirs is a land with a wall around it, and mine is a faith. In my fellow man Theirs is a land of hope and glory Mine is the green field and the factory floor The Eighth Note Sessions are produced by Music is Art. Help keep our podcast going and other programs by donating today at musicisart.org. Thank you for listening.